0: Hello, listeners of Queen City Culture, and welcome to today's episode. Today, I'm sitting down with Alicia Laramie, Program Specialist for New Farms for New Americans through AALV. So, hello, Alicia, and thank you for sitting down with me today. Thank you. Could you talk about the development of AALV and the New Farms for New America program um, and really what inspired
1: the development? So, New Farms for New Americans specifically uh, started as a program... For women who were having a hard time accessing resources in the community because of several uh, barriers—transportation, English skills, and um, just a general unfamiliarity of getting out and about, especially if there were children involved—so the the idea came about because these women were at home more often than they were out and socializing. And it was a way for them to farm and garden together and have childcare at the same time so one person could be watching the children while the others were farming. And from that, the program grew to a much larger program because there was a lot of interest in farming and and general um, crop production from the, the refugee clients that we work with here at AALV. And there was just a general interest in growing foods that are culturally significant and that uh, in some cases people were interested in starting businesses uh, because so many of the people that I work with come from agricultural backgrounds and uh, have significant experience in subsistence farming because that was just the way their lives were uh, prior to being resettled in the U.S., so we uh, continue to work and develop this program so that it that it really met the needs of the farmers and the clients that we serve. And through that, it's gone through several iterations, but the one that we've kind of settled on and that seems to have the most wide-reaching appeal is to run it as a community garden with uh, large tracts of land. And basically with people who... Are used to being subsistence farmers and growing all of their food and not necessarily having to buy very much at the grocery store having having access to land uh, a lot of land was really important and since many of the people that we work with uh, don't live in homes where they have any garden space directly at their home this was uh, considered an important resource for people and so uh, the way it runs now it's I would say 99% of the people I work with are um, grow for their families and about 1% want to 2% grow for a business and um, that's the result of many things but a few of those those reasons are that it's being a farmer in Vermont is a difficult like running your farm as a business is a difficult endeavor. It requires a lot of knowledge, not just about agriculture, but about uh, business development and how to access markets. Uh, you have to have English, really pretty good English skills, and transportation. So, for most people, that is not part of their their goals. And we we keep track of what people participants' goals are, um, and um, and we. We also teach a number of classes. So ours is run as a program so that people can learn about farming in Vermont, farming in this climate, understanding seasons and weather, and we have a greenhouse and we do classes in our greenhouse as well. And how to I mean that is a season extension technique that a lot of people are not familiar with because people didn't need greenhouses in the climates that they were coming from. So for the majority of people, um, there's a lot of interest in in participating in our classes and becoming better farmers here in Vermont. Right now we work with primarily, I would say, over 60% of our participants are Bhutanese, and we have um, maybe about 30% that are Burundian, and then the rest, it's a handful of um, Burmese and Somali Bantu, but pretty small numbers of the of those latter two groups. Yeah.
0: And can you talk about who has access to these programs? Are they primarily new Americans who have settled here in Burlington, or do they have to reach out to you, or do you make it easily accessible?
1: So because of the role that AALV plays in uh, refugee resettlement, we start working with refugees after they've been in the country for about a year. So. Most refugees will come through our door at about 9 months to 12 months after they've been resettled, since we're not the official resettlement agency. And there's a lot of word of mouth uh, with, with people, but because we offer a lot of other services here, and New Farms for New Americans is just a program of AALV, um, people are coming here all the time to ha- seek assistance with case management, kind of thing, where they're needing help with employment or um, understanding some of their benefits and that kind of thing. So, there's a lot of other resources that they're accessing, and then uh, they learn about new farms for new Americans either while they're here or um, because of uh, a friend or something. Yeah. Do
0: you have the same farmers generally returning year after year, or is that kind of...
1: uh, We have a lot of farmers returning year after year. We also have a lot of turnover, Mm -hmm. and the turnover is for a number of reasons. One is outward migration from Vermont, so people are moving to places where housing is more affordable. So we get that a lot. Uh, If I find out that a farmer has left, it's usually because they've gone to Ohio, for example, to join family, where um, that things are more affordable, or the Midwest, where they could buy a home and be working the same hours that they are here in a in a job that's um, a line job somewhere at a company, but in the Midwest they can buy a home with that salary. So there is turnover in that sense, uh, and sometimes it's because the people that have farmed. In their countries of origin, Bhutan, um, Burundi, they are older and they're getting tired. And so sometimes it's, sometimes it's a shift towards just not wanting as much land. Sometimes it's a shift in not wanting to grow the vegetables that require more work. Um, and sometimes it's that somebody in their house got a better paying job and so now they're more interested in shopping at Costco Mm -hmm. where um, they don't have to work so hard for the food so and they can afford to buy it now because the person has someone in their family has got a better job
0: and your farms they're located down in the
1: Intervale. so we have uh, five acres at the Ethan Allen homestead um, in the Winooski Valley Park District so that's where there's a lot of community gardens. Burlington Area Community Gardens is there. The uh, Vermont Community Garden Network Teaching Garden is there. The Children's Garden is mm-hmm. there. Family Room Garden. So there's a lot of different garden programs down at that location. We Our greenhouse is over uh, in the Intervale area. We have a few acres of land at the Intervale as well. And then we have some farmers who are farming independently uh, on other land in Vermont that are still a part of the program, still receiving services from us in some capacity.
0: Um, and can you talk about the indigenous farming practices that some of these people are bringing with them, and maybe the learning curve that they have to go through from their home country to farming in Vermont?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, there's the seasons, mm-hmm. so the the really very different uh, seasons and and then within those seasons, even some of the really sporadic weather, and with climate climate change, it's making it even more difficult for people to understand some of these practices. But, you know, frost dates, the first and last frost dates, are something that people are not familiar with. Uh, so, that whole process, I think, is a big part of learning to farm in Vermont. And then they just, in terms of, for a lot of people, sometimes it's this trial and error period. If if they're not talking with other people of what seeds will grow here, they, we've seen things growing, and then the frost comes, and a plant that needed several more months to really mature, it, it dies. Uh, so sometimes people are willing to take that gamble. We also see a lot of people dig up plants in the fall to bring them home into the uh, if they, If they're not finished harvesting their hot peppers, they'll just dig them up, put them in pots, and bring them home. So uh, people are pretty resourceful, but and with, the, with the addition of the greenhouse and helping people understand about season extension techniques that can extend their season with, using row cover or greenhouses or uh, things like that, there's um that's part of that learning curve but also allows people to grow things that uh, need a little bit longer but can be still be grown and eaten here they just they really have to have that greenhouse uh component in order to make that happen so in terms of practices uh, I mean if you go for a walk in the garden you'll see lots of different things you will you can pretty much tell which culture which um, ethnicity is which based on what you see growing in the field the Burindians will almost and Somali Bantu will almost exclusively have corn growing uh, and maybe a few other things, staple things like onions and tomatoes that everyone uses in their uh, cooking but it's almost like an Exclusively corn because it's the African corn and it's not sweet and it's something that they can't otherwise really buy locally. And in the Bhutanese gardens, you'll see lots of daikon and mustard. And one thing that's different in terms of the way that people grow is the Bhutanese are um, amazing at building trellising systems for their crops, but also they do raised beds, which none of the other groups do. Uh, so there's this um, difference in terms of how things are structured in a plot, um, how they're organized or not. Sometimes they're not structured at all, except just because it's they only have one plant that they're growing and harvesting. Do you have any examples
0: of sharing of knowledge through farming practices down at the community gardens?
1: Well, we had a flood a few years ago we've had several floods. This is part of the problem with climate change is that we've had flooding in the middle of the summer more often than not, I feel like, and there was a lot of interest in starting to do raised beds as a result of the flooding because some of the farmers noticed that where there were raised beds the, the crops had not been affected if their raised beds were high enough and they thought, oh, this is an interesting technique that we might start doing because our plants were all at the same level and we didn't create drainage areas for the water. So that was one thing. And I've just, I mean, there's definitely a lot of buying from and selling or sharing of seeds and certain vegetables. Some people want to put their time and effort into one, several, you know, a particular set of crops but they know that there's another farmer who grows uh eggplants for a business so they'll buy the eggplants from her instead of using up any space on their own plot so people are familiar with each other enough to know what they might prefer to buy from somebody else and then occasionally people just share what they have at the farm but I think it takes more of like an outgoing person to reach across some of those cultural and linguistic barriers that exist at the farm so a lot of people are are there to work hard and be with their family although they they feel the comfort of others around them I don't know that they're always there to socialize with other groups and plus with language being a huge barrier for a lot of people it's sometimes the most that happens is sort of bartering or trading or selling and and that is sort of this universal language of people understanding what's going on. And for those
0: who are trying to produce a source of income through gardening can you talk about um, maybe their experience within the markets of Burlington as there's like such a emphasis on the local food movement are they able to compete With the local farmers in the farmers markets or city market, co op, things like that?
1: I think since there's so few people doing it, there's really just a few examples of it. But if they are growing something that's culturally significant, that may not be familiar with the palate of the regular American diet, they're not even trying that much to market or sell. They've tried a little bit, but it's like any food if it's not a part of your palate and you're not used to it then it's a really hard thing to convince a a population of people to start eating crops or fruits and vegetables that are bitter so instead what they've done is try to market it to communities in the U.S. other communities in the U.S. who are refugee communities or that they have friends and Alabama or Texas or Ohio and send it they get orders and send it in the mail in boxes of of vegetables if they know that they keep Um, but for some farmers it's and I think it's just sort of like a long-term relationship thing that they've built with city market and Mm -hmm. selling there year after year after year and city market kind of knowing that there's this group of cooperative of farmers that work together to sell and it's not a lot but it's I think it's more of like a goodwill kind of thing and uh, the Burlington market is almost impossible to break into if you don't have um, the kinds of skills that a lot of the farmers are coming with which are not just farming but understanding how to use social media and how to set up a website and how to you know do the supply and demand on all web-based. If, if that's just not within your realm of understanding, then it's super hard to break into this market. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: you already talked about the corn that um, a lot of people are growing down at the farms. Do you have other food examples um, of things that have never been seen on the Vermont landscape that these farmers have introduced and are now able to thrive?
1: Uh, Well, with the bhutanese, there's the bitter melon and um, the snake gourd, I would say, in particular, are two vegetables that, and this other vegetable called tukuruke, which I don't really know what the English name is because we don't have it. We don't grow it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But all of these things require trellising systems, so within these huge beautifully constructed natural trellising systems you'll see three different varieties of, of plants hanging and one the size of your thumb the next the size of a cucumber and the largest the size of I don't know probably one and a half feet to two feet long gourd long gourd green mm-hmm. all of them are green the the little one tastes like a cucumber. The middle one, the middle-sized one—that's the size of a cucumber—is the bitter melon, super sweet. Looks like a horny toad <laughs> at least on its flesh. Um, you'll see uh, taro, and with the Burmese and water spinach and Roselle, and lots and lots of mustard greens for the Bhutanese and then the the green. They're called bitter eggs. They're called they're eggplants, but they're bitter tasting, and they're, um, there's a lot of interest in those as well. They're the size of basically an apple, but more oval shaped. And there's five different varieties of the of this of this kind of eggplant, ranging from like a a white to a light green, um, and those I mean I would say that across the board one of the big differences is not just the vegetables but the palate of people is which is much more um on the side of bitter and hot. So those two things, really hot peppers and bitter tasting or mustardy tasting vegetables as opposed to like the, the, the things that I think of more as being sort of an American palate, which would be sweet eggplants and sweet corn and sweet spinach. We're not. There's not really a lot of interest in that kind of food mm-hmm. down at the farm.
0: Can you talk maybe a little about the mixing of old and new food traditions? Potentially farmers adopting um, more Americanized foods... I'm incorporating them with their traditional.
1: That doesn't really happen <laughs> in terms of the garden. Uh, people grow what they grew up eating mm-hmm. and eat what they grew up eating. And that is that is not changing. And we've tried to introduce crops like kale, for example, that does really well in cold weather. And that might be something that people would be interested in eating and incorporating into their diets because there is a variety of greens in every diet. Either it's amaranth or it's mustard greens or it's water spinach, but people try kale and they hate it. (laughs) And so even though it seems like it would be a good idea to try to introduce crops that do really well in cold weather and that they can eat beyond the frost, um, the first frost, It just hasn't taken hold maybe there's some people who are next generation who are more familiar with those tastes and are willing to eat it but uh, for the most part we haven't really seen that the only place where you see new traditions is really through the children and through what they're being exposed to in schools and then I think that's the, the challenge of the, the older generation and the newer generation trying to figure out what the balance in the middle place is for the two different kinds of, not just two, but the different kinds of foods that people are being exposed to either at work or at school or just out in the public. And um, yeah, so uh, the only other thing I would say is that there's there's been a big shift in terms of how long people are, Have to prepare food, whereas food used to be sort of a a very long process. That that's a tradition that I think is being lost. As you see, um, two parents trying two parents working, and that time spent at home is preparing food is being lost. So that's a a change, not not necessarily in the farm, but in terms of people, what people are eating. Mm
0: As I read on your website, that most of these people who are farming uh, through your program were farmers in their home country. Yeah. So that must be a difficult transition now, having to be here and pick up another job to support their families. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people
1: have, they have a full-time job, and then they go to the farm when they get off, either they're working the night shift and they go to the farm before they even go home, and they water their plants in the morning, first thing in the morning, before they get home or they're watering plants in the early afternoon just before they start their afternoon shift we see a lot of that uh, we don't see very many people at the farm during the day in part because it's hot but mm-hmm. also because those times people who are farming are either working a shift or they're giving their parents a ride to the farm and so the, they, the ones that might be working the overnight shift they're just the the person that gives the ride and then there's like grandparents who are actually the ones farming so there's a lot of intergenerational farming with each family i would say that
0: have you done any work with community gardens within burlington or i guess anywhere because i think it's a very interesting contrast between people who participate in community gardens just for fun just to see if they can grow anything versus these people who are participating in this community garden program to sustain their families it's not a
1: hobby mm-hmm. for people i mean that was that would be the one big difference and that's partly why our program changed and why our program is slightly different than the community gardens is because we were meeting our our program was set up to meet the needs of our clients and our clients needed larger tracts of land because this wasn't just for fun and it wasn't a hobby and it's not really for community building. So I often say that this idea of a community garden, it's, it's somewhat of a misnomer in our community because, or in the people I work with because there's we're not putting a lot of emphasis on this community building in part because what we see happening just more organically is that it's these intergenerational uh, spaces and it's where families, it, the, the garden is serving other purposes. It's families coming together, grandparents and grandchildren, and um, you might see three or four generations on one plot working together. It's, uh, it's people who are finding peace and solace in a space that um, that is green, that is outside, it is healing. It's it's not a place that where they experience um, some of the the trauma that they have experienced in their in their lives before. So we let the space be what it is to the individual, as opposed to saying that it's you know we have all of these sort of mandates on building community or mm-hmm. making community because. Um, I think it's serving its purpose in the way that it needs to.
0: Do you see this program developing to something that is able to accommodate more people or to provide them resources like greenhouses throughout the winter? It's obviously a very difficult thing to give everybody access to a greenhouse.
1: Uh, well, right now we haven't ever had a wait list for our greenhouse, so we don't know. It's still new. It's the result of a grant that we, we've we gotten. Um, The one thing that we have talked about in terms of expansion is just trying to create land that's available for people who are only interested in growing corn because the corn is just such a different vegetable or commodity. I mean, it can be planted and left, Mm -hmm. whereas the other gardens need to be tended to in different ways. So we have talked about that in providing that space for people. But I think we're really at the mercy of whatever kind of resettlement there is in the U.S. So whatever the waves of resettlement are, that's what our garden looks like. And if we have a lot of resettlement where the, the people are, um, come from backgrounds where they had professional jobs, we won't see anyone in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I mean, that's the way our garden is. It reflects the, the demographics and the trends in resettlement in Vermont. So it just ebbs and flows depending on who's being resettled. Mm -hmm. And there hasn't been a lot of resettlement in recent years, so the numbers uh, are smaller in terms of who's been resettled in the U.S. and and in Vermont, and therefore um, we might start seeing that in the garden, but so far we're still at capacity.
0: Well, we are almost out of time, so I would just like to thank you again, Alicia, for sitting down with me and sharing everything about new farms for new americans i really appreciate it and yeah for all of my listeners feel free to research new farms for new americans on their website there's a lot of interesting information regarding those who have resettled here in vermont and their farming practices and all the innovations and new foods that they're able to grow so once again thank you so much alicia thank you Of Queen City Culture, and welcome to today's episode. Today I'm sitting down with Carolina Lukak, the Garden Education Manager at Vermont Community Garden Network. So, hello, Carolina. Hello. Can you talk about the work and development of Vermont Community Garden Network? Yes. So,
2: Vermont Community Garden Network, or VCGN for short, is a local nonprofit here in Burlington, Vermont. We have been around for 16 years, and our work focuses on supporting community-based gardens. So anywhere that people are growing food together, be it a more traditional allotment-style garden, or school gardens, affordable housing sites that have gardens, hospital gardens, um, any place where people are interested in growing food, and we support them Through various programs, we have hands-on education programming, um, grant programs that we run every year to support the creation of gardens and and gardens that want to do some improvement projects. Um, And we're always partnering with different organizations, both locally in Burlington and throughout the state of Vermont, to further our mission.
0: And how did you become involved with this kind of work?
2: So I've been in Vermont for the past four years and prior to being in Vermont for this job I was living in Mexico City and I was involved there in running urban agriculture programs and doing some school gardening work. Um, My interest in that I would say originated probably when I was in college and I found out that my college had a school run farm um, and I started interning there and working there and spent the rest of my summers and some years post-college getting to know what growing food is like on a small and medium scale and then being really interested in the educational side of that. So teaching others how to grow their food and so that interest that started in Learning how to grow my own food and then learning how to teach to others took me first to those many years in Mexico City working with urban populations, and then now here in Vermont where there's a thriving food culture um, with a not-so-urban landscape.
0: (laughs) Who is able to participate with these gardens?
2: So i do a very wide range of individuals. My direct work with VCGN is on the garden education programming in Burlington. And so I can share a, a little um, preview of, of work we're doing this upcoming season. Um, I'll be working at seven affordable housing sites. We're in a partnership with Champlain Housing Trust. These are sites all around Chittenden County um, where residents have gardens at their living spaces, and we're there to support them in planting the gardens, in providing technical assistance throughout the season. Um, And those individuals, I see a whole range from young families with um, young kids, single parents, um, some seniors. There's a range of folks um, from the immigrant community, from new Americans who are Um, living at the affordable housing sites. In addition to that, I do some senior gardening. So with the elder population here in town, I'll be working at one site this summer. Um, And that particular residence um, supports individuals with more advanced degrees of dementia Mm -hmm. and Alzheimer's. Um, I know we have Several programs for youth gardens and supporting youth programs. One of my co-workers, Libby, um, does a lot of work with the Farm to School Network and supporting folks who run school gardens. And I'd say the scale of people that we collaborate with is everything from the individual who's renting a plot at a community garden to people gardening at home, whether beginners or more advanced.
1: Yeah, it sounds like anybody who wants to participate (laughs) is
0: able to. Exactly. Uh, Can you talk about the immigrant families that you've worked with within these gardens?
2: Sure. So most of the work that I've done with the New American community here in Burlington has been through the Family Room Garden. The Family Room is a parent-child center based here in downtown Burlington, and during the summer months they run there are playgroups out in the garden at the Ethan Allen Homestead. And so activities that typically take place indoors are shared outdoors. There are activities for children. Um, parents always participate along with their children. And I've been involved with supporting the gardening aspect where there's around 60, 65 different kitchen plots for families to sign up for. I would say half, if not more than half of them, are New American families, and many of them come from agricultural backgrounds, they Mm -hmm. know a lot about gardening, um, but have many questions about how to make it work in Vermont, or how to get access to much-loved crops like okra. I know every year I'm asked to bring more and more okra seeds, Um, so I'm there to support that, and to also work more specifically with the children. Um, There's a little... A children's exploration garden that we've set up that allows us to work on some nutrition education and some getting to know um, the world of food through gardening
0: you just mentioned the okra what are people planting obviously it differs from plot to plot yeah but do you like bring them initially in with like a standard set of vegetables or this <laughs> has been do an they interesting really experience get to
2: because the family room garden I'd say for the most part receives donations from greenhouses, from farms, from nonprofits like us, of extra seedlings, extra plants, and extra seeds. And it's been very interesting to be there for different seasons, because now I feel so I have a sense of what are the hot, hot items, mm-hmm. I would say tomatoes are always much loved, but not so much cherry tomatoes. People are looking for mm. bigger tomatoes to make sauces with. And that's something, making the tomato sauces is something that I see cross-culturally. Hot peppers is another one that are a little bit sometimes challenging to grow in Vermont, depending on what our season looks like. But bell peppers will remain on the donation table versus something like a cayenne pepper Mm -hmm. or (laughs) a Thai pepper, those fly off the shelf um, and into people's gardens. And then some herbs that I see, are much love cilantro, parsley. Sometimes flowers get get people's attention, but I would say in, in as far as the vegetable world, in addition to tomatoes, peppers, onions, very loved cabbage also. I'm, I'm surprised that I've seen so many people go after the cabbage. Um, not so much kale. I, I don't see too many people thrilled about kale, but
0: other leafy greens that can be cooked down like spinach. That was not the first time that I heard. <laughs> that kale was not the winner. You said that a lot of these people are coming with their own knowledge of agriculture from their home countries. Is there any like sharing of knowledge between the leaders at Vermont Community Garden Network and those who are gardening? Just like a sharing of knowledge, you teach them about how to farm in Vermont and then they teach you maybe techniques and things. Yep, I would say the
2: the that, that a cultural exchange that most stands out for me are times when we've done cooking activities. So mm-hmm. We've done kind of cooking from around the world, and that gives everyone an opportunity to share a little bit of where they come from. And so we first focus on growing the vegetables. Um, so by mid-summer, mid-late summer, I'd say probably around late July or August, um, we take a look and see what, folks are growing in their gardens, and we ask around and see who's interested in cooking something from their native land. Um, I can think of the year that we did the most cooking was a couple years ago. I can think of, um, we definitely had some samosas made. I believe a family made momos. We had, what else can I think of? <laughs> With my, my cultural background from Mexico, we made salsa and handmade tortillas. Um, one book that comes to mind that I've seen several interpretations depending on where you're reading it is um, Stone Soup. And it talks about a community coming together to make a pot of soup where everybody mm-hmm. donates an ingredient. So we made a version of that, and that seemed like one of those occasions where oh. everybody donated their, their favorite vegetable, and you put it all together in one pot, That's
0: and so fun. it
2: comes out delicious. Um, well, those are some examples of how cooking brought everyone together, mm-hmm. and the actual cooking was done out in the garden with children of all ages and adults, um, so I think that was another opportunity. I can even think of how people chopped the vegetables was very specific, and how... Some children had much more experience in the kitchen. Um, I think that was another time for me that was, oh, it's not just about growing your food, but how you prepare it Mm -hmm. is also sometimes specific to different cultures.
0: Now, can you talk a little bit about the dynamics at the community gardens? Because you just mentioned how you did the (coughs) stone soup where everybody was contributing. Are these gardens intended to build community, or are they intended to let individuals grow their own food? And not have that pressure of having to interact with everybody around them. I'd say definitely in the
2: work that we do, the community aspect is just as important as the food access aspect of of our work. Um, and I would say it's it's sometimes challenging um, when a group of people are gardening together. There's so many different um, considerations of what plot is yours, and is everybody taking care of their weeds, who has access to the water, Um, and a lot of the work that we do is not only providing the technical assistance and donating seeds and giving that kind of hands-on gardening advice, but also focusing on garden management. So how to recruit volunteers, how to set up common agreements amongst gardeners, Mm -hmm. what are some best practices for a collective use of a shed, Um, what are different designs for gardens that include um, different accessibility features, um, whether it's the gravel path or a raised bed, are there shade structures? So all these um, more organizational and infrastructure elements of a community garden are, are definitely a focus of a lot of the work that we do because gardens have to be functional spaces and have to be warm and welcoming spaces in order to build that community aspect and so we want to make sure that yes there's soil to grow food but all these other elements are in place so that people can enjoy the company of others and create new relationships in a garden setting and we find that gardens are a prime location Mm -hmm. for creating um, relationships amongst different cultures and different ages and from different backgrounds.
0: Are these separated garden plots? Yeah,
2: and so it, it depends what gardens. Um, we, we definitely support gardeners in many different arrangements of community-based gardens, mm-hmm. whether they're managed by a school or whether it's the rent-a-plot allotment style. Um, and even in community gardens, um, how they are managed varies mm-hmm. a lot. There's some... Um, we've seen a handful of gardens that are running a collectively managed system where it's many gardeners come together from the neighborhood or from the local community. And instead of each having each person having their own individual plot, everybody gardens together. So there's one potato bed and there's one tomato bed and all the lettuce is grown. and the chores are on a rotating basis and people do what they can in the garden and then take home weekly shares and we've seen different different ways that people are organizing um, to grow food. Just sounds like what a community garden should be. <laughs> really, I agree, I agree. Definitely. And I've seen the amount of food grown in collectively managed gardens is much higher because you can dedicate a whole bed to one crop. So I think that that's definitely a benefit. But as we were saying the, the people managing aspect mm-hmm. requires a lot of a lot of attention. Good organization. So, if you have that, then you can focus on that increased production.
0: Can you talk about the development of that system? I'm just so curious. Like, I can't imagine it was smooth the entire yeah. time. Um, was there like a learning curve or?
2: A- so, I can talk about the the collectively managed garden um, that I ran last year as part of the community teaching garden. Um, community teaching garden is a program we've been running. For at least the past 10 years, and last year was the first year that one of our garden sites out at the mill we decided to switch the management style, and instead of each student having their own plot, mm-hmm. there was a group of 10 students who together shared the responsibility for managing the 2,000 square foot garden. Um, my initial introduction to Collectively Managed Gardens is a garden out in Montpelier. It's the garden at 485 Elm Street and they have an absolutely amazing example of a couple who has opened up a community garden on their own residential property and it has been collectively managed from the beginning and it's beautiful they grow an immense amount of vegetables and some perennial fruits and herbs and flowers and I went there to visit and learn about how they are managing it and then was inspired to run last year's community teaching garden with that collective model. Um, I would say there's definitely a learning curve to be had. Um, for me, a lot of changing a physical space from individual beds to mm-hmm. collective beds requires some some readjustments as to how where the pathways are and how can we make beds wider. Um, I would say the the consensus process with The people element is also interesting on how do we decide what variety of tomatoes we want to grow. Some people love cherry tomatoes, some people want the plum tomatoes. Um, And I found that being in a garden with like-minded people made those decisions easier. Mm -hmm. Um, There wasn't conflict as to what are we going to grow. Um, And the accountability that people felt, I was impressed. If somebody didn't come to our weekly work parties, or was absent because they were traveling over the summer, they definitely felt accountable to the garden and asked if they could go and put in a few extra hours of weeding um, outside of our work party. Um, So for the most part, I feel like it inspired that accountability if everybody is putting in time at this garden where I'm eating from, I need to find the opportunity to put in time. Um, And yeah, there were some people who probably were at the garden less than others, but when it came time to collecting all the harvest, putting it on the picnic table, and everybody stands there with a the basket and collects the vegetables that they want, that they feel they can consume within the next week and fills up their little basket. There was always extra on the table. And I think for me that's a big sign that mm-hmm. if, if we're all in this together and working hard, there is an abundance, and even that abundance goes far. Sometimes I had to really encourage people to take it home or to give it to their neighbors. There was a hand, small handful of times that we had extra harvest and the opportunity for somebody to actually take it to the food shelf. God,
0: that's so inspiring. And it and it was, definitely, definitely. Earlier you mentioned that you are from Mexico City, and obviously there's strong links between food and culture. Can you talk about, I guess, those connections that you've seen through the Community Garden program, Are like even you coming from Mexico to Vermont, how important it is to continue those traditions of food Mm
2: -hmm.
0: yeah i would say that gardening
2: in mexico city and i was in the biggest city in that part of the world um where there's a lot of individuals who are very disconnected from the process of growing food and have absolutely no idea what a carrot pulled from the ground looks like or that tomatoes um need to be trellised Um, So my context there was very much working, I would say, on the basics. I'm like, these are vegetables, and these are herbs, and these are flowers, and this is how we grow it. Um, And when it came time to enjoy the food, I found there's there's more connection with the process of eating versus the actual growing of food that I saw, at least in that urban population. Then coming here to Vermont, I think something that stood out for me a lot is There's so many resources here. It's really easy to grow your food in Vermont. Even though the season is much shorter, you can find seeds and you can find plants. And there's a greenhouse or a nursery in almost every um, bigger town. And in Mexico City, even though it's the biggest city around, there was no seeds. When I started gardening there, I brought seeds from the U.S., snuck them in my suitcase, and took them down to Mexico because there was no place to find seeds. that weren't definitely um, more conventional agriculture. The seeds are all planted in these fluorescent colors, and you can go to the markets in Mexico and buy them. And they're incredibly strong fluorescent colors, and they're treated with fungicides and Mm -hmm. herbicides. So I initially brought down the seeds. Um, and then as the years went by, we started collecting seeds and there were some other small farms outside of Mexico City that started producing seeds. So by the end of my eight, ten years of running urban agriculture programs in Mexico, I saw these basic inputs for gardening starting to appear. Like we had access to them now. Um, and that's around the time when I left and came to Vermont But I still carried with me kind of the thriftiness of really taking care of my seeds. and. Really being sure that I'm I'm only planting what I can eat, and in Vermont I've just seen such abundance in gardens. It's like extra all the time. So I think the the seed saving aspect is something that has stuck with me, um, and that I've tried to do a little bit more of my own seed saving here. Um, it's interesting to work with the community with the Vermont Community Garden Network because we receive last year's seeds that can no longer be sold. Um, that high mowing has and that gardener supply for example takes off their shelves there's so many seeds that can no longer be sold because they're last year's production um and so those are the seeds that we donate to groups seeds are still viable um lettuce seeds are viable for five seven years but they can't be sold if they're packaged for a given year um So now I'm surrounded by this abundance of seeds and it seems like oh I'll never be out of seeds but I think having grown up in in Mexico and having that been my introduction to community gardening I think my perspective on like what a seed is is very different like there's limited amounts of seeds and we really need to take care of them I think that's something that
0: stands out for me more um I mean, I've really never gardened. I'm alongside my mom, I have, so these are things that I've never really considered. Mm -hmm. The seeds being abundant and then having to throw them away after one year, that just is such a waste, and it's great that you guys are utilizing them. Mm -hmm. So how do you see VCGN expanding in the future?
2: One of our, um, I'd say our big focus for this year, and this is our first year of, having a transition as far as our executive director and doing a lot of work with strategic planning for the organization, we are very much focusing on the network aspect of the work that we do. So yes, we maintain strong roots here in Burlington and in our partnerships within Burlington, but we really want to embody the work that we do as a network to support gardens and gardeners all around the state of Vermont. So I know my colleague's Um, have been traveling to communities around Vermont um, gardens that we already know of places that we've heard of to connect with people there and learn about what are people in Vermont who are somehow involved in a community-based garden what are they needing what kind of support would be helpful Um, so that's been a huge focus of the work that we do Um, one example is our annual It's a garden work day and fundraising event It's called Day in the Dirt that happens at the end of April and last year was the first year that we extended it statewide and this year we're furthering that effort to not only um, organize volunteers and a big work party and fundraising for gardens in Burlington but also statewide. we have a grant program that grantees were recently announced the last week. Um, it's called the Thriving Gardens Grant, and that is to support garden improvement projects around the state. Um, so as, as we find funds available to support gardens from around the state and gardeners around the state, um, I would say that's kind of the next focus of the work that we do, really be the network. Mm-hmm. And along with that, being able to connect to other similar networks around um, around the country, uh, I'm always love the comparison that my colleague Libby makes on how we have a network. There's somewhere around four to five hundred community-based gardens in Vermont. Um, we are continually updating our database, and that's. Similar to the amount of gardens that are in a big city or even in a big neighborhood. And if you think about New York City, (laughs) they have four to five hundred gardens by borough. And so our statewide network is almost the size of some city or neighborhood networks in other parts of the country. So, how is our work? Similar and what can we learn each other is also something that we're interested in and adjusting it and adapting it to the,
0: to the Vermont scale. We're up to 500. sounded like a lot <laughs> to me. Yeah, oh, is. wow. I guess I was just curious when you were talking about expanding, but have you done work with Huertas in the past? Because I feel like you guys are very similar. Yeah. <laughs> I personally haven't. I know every year when we have our seed
2: donation, kind of call for seed donations and people contact us, asking for the donated seeds, and we send a packet of 25 to 30 seeds. I know every year, um, whether it's it's interns or coordinators from where it says have contacted us to come and gather seed donations, mm-hmm. uh, but we have not had more collaboration than that. Okay. I think, as, as you're saying, I think it's prime connections. <laughs> um,
0: well, we are actually almost out of time. So, Carolina, I would just like to thank you again for sitting down with me today, uh, and to all of my listeners. Uh, make sure you check out bcgn.org for more information um, and about their work and ways that you can get involved.